You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Today our teaching text comes from Leviticus 27 through 8. Consecrate, consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Keep your decree and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, church. <clears throat> so happy to be with you all this morning. <clears throat> Got a little tickle in the throat, but we're going to be all right. Uh, just want to take a second just to open us in prayer today. <clears throat> Father, we center, we center our hearts on your word. We open our ears to hear. You say that my sheep know my voice and they hear me and they follow after me. Lord, may that be true. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, it is Sunday, which I will be honest, in my house, uh, first, uh, is about being here with you all and the, the way I love that. And then second, it's about succession. I don't know if any of you <laughs> have also been snatched into the succession. Suc- succession? Succession. Uh, Cool, but it's this, it's this show. You watch it if you want. But <clears throat> we watch it at my house. No spoilers, I promise. But you know, season three just started. And if you don't know about this show, it is, and I think Carlos is going to give me some water. God bless you, brother. Um, <clears throat> if you don't know about the show Succession, it's basically this picture of opulence and wealth and this very rich family. It's kind of a King Lear story uh, where you have this old guard uh, who's head of this big global media empire and his three kids who are battling to succeed him as he is nearing um, retirement. And so there's all this infighting, there's all this like view of like the 1%, these like ultra rich people. And there's this part of last episode, again, no spoilers, where Uh, They're in this $24 million apartment in Manhattan, and there are these two characters who are in this apartment that doesn't belong to them, and they actually have just kind of forced themselves on the owner of the apartment. And not only that, they just kind of open this bottle of wine, and there's this big dust-up because apparently this bottle of wine was like super expensive and really old. And she's like, don't you see the dust that was on it? Like I've been saving it, it was for my grandmother. And there's this whole hubaloo. And I watched that and I was like, man, I don't really know what that's like to have something of like, that I consider like real value. Like I'm not a very sentimental person. And so I don't really regard anything with a sort of like, deep desire for it. Like, I kind of just live with it with an open hand. Can can we just give a hand clap of praise for Carlos? (laughs) Thank you, brother. Okay, 
got to be careful nowadays. You start like coughing and clearing your throat with COVID, people start running away. It's a whole thing. Okay, uh, we're back. Here we go. So that's always just been a weird concept to me to have something that I would value like that much. And kind of the closest approximation of it is I was thinking about like what I would consider holy or even for like my friends or family would be, I just kept going back to my father growing up. Now, I've told you, we grew up uh, a very modest family. Um, forget about being a two-car family. There were large swaths of times where we were not even a one-car family. And, you know, we had to like bike to get where we needed to go. And But my dad um, always like was kind of a car guy. And he just kind of like wanted a really like nice car for him. And there was this one part in my childhood when he was able to get this like used Volvo. And most of you would walk past that thing and be like, that's some junk. But to us, it was like the creme de la creme. Like we might as well have been like a Rolls Royce. And my dad would go out almost every weekend and he would just practice such care and like vacuuming it out and washing it and cleaning it and making it shine. And it really did look like this beautiful vehicle after he put so much love and care and the armor all on the tires. And I was just thinking about that kind of relationship of the, ourselves to these items that we value and how we set something apart. And I just remember how part of my dad doing that, I think, was to like there was something of status. There was something uh, that made him feel good to drive down the street and have people notice this sleek silver car sparkling in the sun. But then also over time, it became actually a little less about that. And it just became more about this car having become a receptacle for his love and his passion and his time and his energy. Like he just valued this thing. Now, you can probably understand why uh, the one time he let this Philistine drive it <laughs> was the one time that I ran a yellow light and got it totaled. Yeah, it broke his heart. And he loved me still. Uh, <laughs> but it's such an interesting thing to understand what it means to set something apart and to call it sacred. We're going to talk about that a little bit today, really, because we're continuing our series, Hello, I Am, unpacking the names of God and the stories behind them and what they tell us, not just about who God is, but his character and his nature, which then we hope will serve to draw us into deeper intimacy with our creator and add a richness to the way in which we relate to him. Now, if you weren't here last week or didn't get a chance to listen to the podcast, we left off uh, with Moses at this burning bush. And he uh, is called by Yahweh. This is the first time God names himself before his people. And this name Yahweh just inferred this above it all nature of God. He who is immutable and doesn't change. I am who I have been and will always be. And so Moses is staring at this bush. God is, is talking to him through it. And he commissions him to return to Egypt from the desert in which he had run away from. And he wants him to go to Egypt and petition for the freedom of his people, and then to submit and to ask the people to follow his leadership out of bondage. Now, today, 
we're gonna kind of go back into the story, but we're gonna fast forward a bit. So Moses, where we left him, took up this commission. He successfully led the people out of bondage, a little help from the Lord, uh, and into the presence of God who has rescued them, only to find that these people that have just been rescued are the same stiff-necked, ungrateful people who knew before. So much so that after 10 plays and God splitting a sea to free them and filling their pockets with, with plundered gold, Moses can't even go up a mountain to sit with God without them making an idol and debasing themselves. They completely reject this God who has freed them. And this creates a fundamental problem. Because on the one hand, we have this pure God, right? Like we said, Yahweh, as we talked about last week, this is a God that is above it all. He's not manipulated or swayed. He doesn't um, forfeit or steal or turn. He is always and has been good and will always be good. And then you have his people who are defiled people. They're constantly mucking things up. They're constantly debasing themselves. They're turning to anything that will give them a hope of love or some version of it. And the reason why this is a problem is because this purity of God is kind of like the shirt I have on. It's brand new, just fresh out of the pack, which is the only time it will look this white, okay? Because uh, I am a very messy eater, right? And you can kind of tell by something like when you've got like that new white shirt or something new, right? It, it, it kind of has this, this, this story behind it. You can tell by somebody how messy they are. You can tell where they've been, right? Because white shows impurities, right? It shows that dinginess of time and decay. It shows how you've roughed up and messed up and touched things that were dirtier than you were. White, you can't hide anything. And this is the same of God. He is pure and brilliant. His glory and his holiness is radiant. And as such, it cannot have impurity around it. And so how do you have a God, this pure God, and this unpure people, this impure people? This makes it impossible for them to be in relationship. So God sets off to do something. What does he do? Well, God makes a law. And not just a law, God makes a promise. And actually, God just doesn't make one law. He makes 613 of them. And these laws, they give structure to the Hebrew people socially, legally, and ceremonially. And these laws, there's, there's, a, there's a purpose of these laws, two of which we'll focus on today. One, the first purpose of this law is to form a covenant. So these laws form a covenant or uh, more than a promise. A covenant is just like, two-way agreement between two parties, between God and his Hebrew people. And I'm not going to get into the, the, the depth of, of Hebrew covenant and uh, Semitic covenant during this time, but I just want to ask you if, you, if you want to know more, there's a lot of riches there. You can go home and you can Google uh, suzerain vassal covenant, right? Uh, and you'll find a whole bunch of information around this. But this is a very specific form of covenant. And the, the, basic, of it, the basic gist of it is this. This type of covenant creates fictional kinship between two parties. Why is this important? So when you're dealing in ancient times, obviously 
your main source of survival was family. These were the people that you were born with and you had some bond with. And so there was some genetic and biological disposition to protect one another. You could count on your blood. And so a lot of the responsibilities toward another person broke down along ethnic family blood lines, right? And since family was the dominant structure for protection, wealth, and growth, and sustenance, if you wanted to create a covenant, if you needed something from someone who wasn't a part of your bloodline, you then had to form some object, some some agreement that made you family, that bonded you uh, irrevocably. And so this, say, would be like our concept of marriage today, right? where two people want to come in and they create some new family through this covenant. We stand and we give these vows and we say, you are now mine, I am now yours. And from henceforth, we are this new unit, this new family. And so this kinship bond, this type of covenant, is what God does here at this Mount Sinai Sorry, when he institutes this law with his people. God is setting up a framework for them to be relation, for them to be family. Typically within this type of covenant, there's a ruling party and a lower party. And the ruling party basically promises land and protection and sustenance. Uh, in return for like loyalty and fidelity and this uh, lower party to like fight on their behalf and to essentially belong to them. Now, we kind of see this in Exodus 19 where God says to the people, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wing and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. So this law, forms this covenant. This is what God is asking them to do, that you would just obey my laws. But the laws do more than form a covenant. They also provide a standard. And this is actually really important. Now, societally, we're in the middle of this kind of fundamental change. Maybe you've noticed. All sorts of sectors and people are getting shaken up, right? And fundamentally, there's this question that's being asked and being challenged. And that question is, who sets the rules? Now, traditionally, in this country, as in every other place and in every other relationship, those who have power have traditionally set the rules. And oftentimes, because we as a people just happen to be fundamentally unfair, those rules are often in favor of those in power. It's kind of like when I used to, uh, you know, bet my sister when we were younger. It'd be like, heads you lose, tails I win. And so we set up these rules to maintain and hold on to power. And in our country right now, those who have historically been under power are now resisting, and because of all sorts of factors, demographics, population, uh, change of, of, of societal standards, there is now this push where the minority is saying, we will no longer be subjugated to the rules of the ruling class, those who have been able to set 
power. We want to make the rules. But there's kind of a slight problem. There's this musician, Show Baraka. He says uh, in the strap, do I really want peace or do I want power so I can try it? Those who have been marginalized rightfully are pushing against oppressive systems. But oftentimes what the history of the world tells us is that those on the underside of power get in power and they place somebody else on the underside of power. There's this uh, visual illusion. Uh, maybe you had like, you know, when I was a kid, we had all kind of like Lisa Frank binders, you kind of are the little things you hold up to your face and pull away slowly and all these like visual illusions. But there's this one famous visual illusion uh, called the checker shadow illusion. You can look it up. I have it up here on the screen, but it's like a chessboard and there's a cylinder on it. So, okay, you can't really quite see this, but there is a little, what you would think is a white square in the shadow of the cylinder. And then at the top of the very top of the board, there's this really dark square. And so these two, you would say, are obviously different colors, right? Like it's pretty clear as day. But this is a visual illusion. Actually, those two squares are the very same color. And what's happening is your mind, your eyes are looking at the shadow cast by the cylinder and it's reading that lighter square, that square in, in the shadow as lighter than it truly is. And this is kind of illustrative of what we're doing in society sometimes and what we do throughout history, right? I look and I say, clearly you guys are really messed up. And in actuality, there's some, there can be a lot of truth to that, right? But it's very hard for me to see my own darkness and brokenness. It's very hard for me to see the ways in which I take a part in subjugation and oppression. This is the problem with covenants and power-sharing agreements. And this would be a problem for this covenant that we're talking about with God and his people because God becomes a standard and he says, hey, in this covenant, I will bring my full self and all my goodness and all my above-it-all-ness to the table. And what will you bring? Well, if the standard, if we're bringing equal things to the table, the Israelite people had nothing to match the wonders of a God who created a universe by speaking. So this would become elementary unfair. But to fix that, God then puts up not only his collateral, but he puts up the collateral of the Israelite people. This is the basis of our teaching text today. Leviticus 20, verse 7, God says, consecrate yourselves. And just to give a little context, this verse comes in the middle of, of the book of Leviticus, which is essentially the book of the laws. The Levites were the, the holy uh, tribe of Israel. They were the priests. 
and they have this, these, these laws, again, that define the social, ceremonial, uh, and uh, legal aspects of Hebrew life. And in the midst of these laws God is call- that God is calling them to, that forms this covenant, he says this, verse 7, Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. And so we have this proposition, you must be holy, because I'm holy. I'm bringing holiness to the table, therefore you must too. Keep my decrees and follow them. But then, verse 8. Because I am the Lord who makes you holy. This fundamentally makes us unlike any other covenant. Yahweh sets his holiness and his goodness and his unblemished nature as the standard. And then he goes to a people who've already proven themselves impure, and he says, you also have to bring that to the table, but I know you can't, therefore I will make you holy. I will make you the same as me. I will both bring my holiness, and I will give my holiness to you so that this covenant is based in, through, by, and for me to your pleasure. That, this name of God that we're uncovering today is what that word, those words, I am the Lord who makes you holy, mean. Those become the title, Jehovah M'Kadashakim. You're like, what? I practiced that all week, guys. (laughs) Jehovah M'Kadashakim, which means the Lord who sanctifies you. Now, that word, kadash, kadash. This is a Hebrew verb that means to consecrate, to set aside in a special manner, to make holy. This is my dad out there on the Saturday just making that baby sparkle, getting it ready to shine. It's setting something apart. This is the same word used in Genesis 2 to describe the seventh day. This is the first time we see God practice kadash. Exodus 20 puts it this way. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, your livestock, or the sojourners who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so we have this holy day, which then gets a new title as a Sabbath day. And the idea of Sabbath is really helpful in understanding this concept of holiness and what we mean by a God who makes things holy and what we mean by God who sanctifies. Because both Sabbath and holiness are intrinsically linked, often concepts throughout Scripture. And both are used by God as both a means and a metaphor. So I want to pack those real quickly so we can see what I'm talking about. First, a means. The Sabbath cycle provided rest and restoration for the Hebrew people, the land, and their society. A part of that being set apart is allowing these things to rest and be restored. How do we see this? 
we see this uh, Jesus, uh, or God again, as we read just now, in Exodus to the seventh day, and he says there's not going to be any work, and this is going to provide rest for the people. In Leviticus 25, God tells the people, after, okay, there's seven days, but then on the seventh year, the land will rest, and you'll let the land recover. And then on the seventh of the seventh year, or the 49th year, all the society was reset in a practice called the year of Jubilee, where lands were returned, people were freed, and everything was reset. Everything was brought back to rest and made whole. All that was lost was regained. This is an aspect of Sabbath. This is an aspect of holiness. All that was lost is regained and made whole. Now, holiness as a means. Consecrated people provide rest and restoration for all people, the land, and all society. So God is using holiness just as he used the Sabbath to bring about rest. God used holiness and set apart people to bring about rest and restoration for all people. How do we see this? Genesis 22. God says that he's going to take uh, from the people that will become a Messiah. So he says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, he's speaking to uh, Abraham as he uh, goes to, re- to sacrifice his son Isaac, and God stops him. He says, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, through you, your offsprings, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God sets aside the Hebrew people to create Jesus, a lineage for the Messiah who will provide an ultimate rest. Matthew 1 and 18, a virgin is set aside to produce a Messiah. We see this again. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to marry to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Two things about this passage of note. Emmanuel means God with us. Messiah, the birth of Messiah, that that word Messiah is the Greek word for anointed one, or set apart one, Mashiach in the Hebrew. It's all talking about someone that is set apart, and from that set apart thing, there is rest, and there is restoration. So Hebrew people are set aside to bring about rest and restoration. A virgin is set aside, and then Jesus himself is set aside to be our rest and restoration. We see this in Matthew 16. Jesus talks to Peter as he's talking to his disciples about who do the people say that I am? Well, Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the set apart one. You are the consecrated one. And Jesus commends Peter on this testimony because he says this did not come from you but from the Father. So God is using people, he is using holiness as a method to bring about wholeness. He uses the Sabbath to bring about wholeness and rest. This is what it means when we have a God who sanctifies. He is constantly working for our rest and our restoration. But also he is using these things as a metaphor. They're pictures. Sabbath is a picture of dependency on God and rest provided by Jesus. We see this in Hebrews 4, where it says, For all have entered God's rest, have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. 
And so we understand now that God sets up Sabbath to help us and to show us that he is creating rest for the world. That what he asks of us in this covenant is not to work us through the bone, but that we would just rest in him. We see this again in Colossians 2. It says, therefore, do not anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or new moon celebration or Sabbath day. These are a shadow, a picture of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Again, the point of Sabbath was pointing to the one who brings us into an ultimate Sabbath an ultimate rest that is to come. This is why Matthew 12 and 8 says, for the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus, is Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath points to an eventual rest from all our striving. But the same with holiness. It is also a picture. It is a picture of needed dependency on God and the power provided by Jesus. Acts 13 says this, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. If the law was the standard for holiness, we are learning here from the writer of Acts that that law was never intended to make us holy, but it was to serve as a metaphor. It was to serve as a picture that we needed Jesus to provide our forgiveness. We see this in Isaiah 6, the power of God that's provided through holiness. So in this chamber, Isaiah is having this vision and he's in this chamber where there are these angels circling the throne room of God and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then one of these angels comes down and it grabs a flaming fire off the temple of, uh, of the altar of God and, and, and Isaiah says this in verse 5, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one flew, he takes that live coal, and he touched it on his mouth, and see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. There's something very interesting here about the righteousness, the holiness of God. When Isaiah's unclean lips, his impure lips touch the pure coal of God, it doesn't make that coal dirty. It itself is restored, renewed, and made whole. This is what God is doing. This is Jehovah M'Kadashakim. He is the one that is making us whole. He is the one that is inviting us into rest. And the standard is his standard. He is the standard, but he is fulfilling it through Jesus. So what does this mean for us? Well, a couple things. We're gonna wrap this up. First, it means that God sanctifies and keeps the covenant with himself as we rest in him and are dependent upon him. It isn't about us. None of this is about us. It is about God. God is doing it. He is keeping promise with himself. 
And in return, not only do we get the benefits of that kept promise, but in return, the way that we participate is entering into rest. And being dependent upon him. Not having to fight our own battles. Not having to climb our own holy mountains. But it's surrendering to him. Second is this. Like the law, God has made us to be a means and a metaphor. As the people of God, we are the way in which God, until he comes in his fullness and in his glory, to tend to all people, he expresses and shows his sanctifying love to the world. As we become people of mercy and justice and grace. Just like Jesus, we have carried on this, this, this ministry of reconciliation. of showing God's love towards humanity. This is why Jesus says, by your, they will know you by your love. This is how they will know that you are my disciples. And then God is using this as a metaphor to very literally and metaphorically show those who are squandered in sin that they are not too dirty to be made clean. This is really important. I don't think the holiness of God is a very new concept. If you've been around church long enough, you've heard it. And actually, the reality is, if you haven't been around church, you've probably also heard about the holiness of God because you've probably interacted with people who have called you to a standard that has been abusive and hurtful and neglectful, and they've called you to live a life that they themselves aren't even living. Or maybe you're the one calling people to that. I know that I have. And historically, we can view holiness as like this white shirt, right? That I was dirty, I was broken, and then God saved me. And now that I am made clean, the last thing I can do is be bothered to go get around dirty people. Because they might dirty my shirt. And I don't want your stink on me and your uncleanness on me, right? And so I put myself here and you there and neither the twain shall meet. And yet this is not what God is doing. Again in Isaiah, the things of God that he has made pure and clean, as Corinthians say, he has called, made us the righteousness of God, right? When he makes us clean, what that then allows us to do is actually go into the dirtiest places and show people that there is love, that they haven't squandered, they haven't run too far. It's about giving us the power to embrace the broken and the dirty and the unclean in the name of Jesus and the power of Jehovah Makashadakim. It's like this. I feel like for so long, right? 
if I touch you, I'm going to get your sin on me. And if I'm sinful, how am I going to go before God? And we're both going to be screwed, right? But here's what God is doing. Here's the picture of Jehovah, Makasha the Kim, is that we come before God through regular confession, through regular abiding with him, by going to the table. He sanctifies us. So when we go, love dirty people, and we go, spend time with God, what does he do? He just cleans us. And he says, hey, you're good to go. Get back out there. This is the God that we serve. The God that sanctifies. Not in of our own strength. Not in of our own power. But he does it all. The band's about to come back up. Here's our invitations for today. You can stay. You can stay. The invitation is this. You just close your eyes. Would you take stock of the places in which you are covered in sin? Maybe it's yours, maybe it's someone else's. The brokenness that you're carrying. And I wonder if you just think about how that's affected your relationship with God. Has it made you afraid to go before him? Fearful that he'd reject you? Has it just further added to the lies that you tell yourself? That you'll never be worthy? Or are you trying to hide it? trying to wipe yourself off like he won't maybe he won't notice have you convinced yourself that you're not dirty at all the reality is if we're honest we all know that we are not clean 
And I feel like the invitation today is to come before a God who cleanses us, who sanctifies us, who washes us, who makes us new. And find that when he takes your dirty rags and changes it for his white robes, he doesn't require you to stay. He doesn't expect you to keep them clean. Actually, he's sending you out to go get more dirty people and bringing them in and letting them know where you've been and who you found. But he wants you every time, every time, inevitably, you get them stained, that you would come and that you would abide with him again and again and that you would allow him to continually keep making you clean and making you holy. That you would allow him to make you a means for the world to know that he has come and made a way. That he would make you a picture of the sanctifying nature of the one who's above it all. Would you accept it? The second, we're going to sing. We're going to proclaim the goodness of God. But I want to invite you, there are these prayer rugs here on the side, and we say it every week, but these aren't magic. But they are just set-aside spaces, our own little consecrated spaces where we can just come and do with our bodies what our hearts are doing. Maybe you just need to come before the Lord and get on your knees and say, Jehovah, would you make me clean? And maybe, maybe you just need someone to give you that cleansing, receiving touch of God. To remind you that you haven't outran the love of God. So there are going to be people up here who stand ready to pray with you. But I also want to just challenge us to pray for one another. second we're going to come to the table we'll take of communion and we'll be reminded of the sacrifice that makes us clean but I would just pray that you wouldn't leave here today without having done business with God so let us pray we thank you Lord we thank you that even in all your glory and your holiness you come down into the muck and the mire and you pull us out. That you who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Would you forgive us of all the ways in which we've tried to clean ourselves and all the ways we've convinced ourselves that we're not dirty at all. And would you lead us in the path of everlasting for your name's sake? Would you make us holy as you are holy? A consecrated, set-apart people. 
sanctified people, declaring to the world that there is Jehovah, the one who sanctifies. Come, and he will cleanse you too. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus.